Hey, y'all, I wanted to take a second before we get into this episode to remind you that the show is also available on YouTube. And starting from episode number 101, it's all in 4K. I'm trying to make the best video podcast I can, so definitely check it out and subscribe to the channel if you haven't already. Go to youtube.com slash at progressionspod or hit the link in the show notes. If you're not getting enough progressions and you want to get even more thoughts on creativity, productivity, and growth in music, then you should sign up for my newsletter. You'll find a brief article in each monthly edition as well as updates on progressions and myself. I'm also sharing some workflow hacks and links to stuff that I found interesting or helpful. So it should be fun. If you want to stay up to date on the latest and get all the bonus stuff, go to travisferrance.com slash subscribe or click the link in the show notes. Hey, welcome to Progressions, success in the music industry. I'm your host, Travis Ferentz, and this is episode number 30. Really cool interview coming at you today. I'm interviewing two people at the same time. It's definitely a fun one. But before we get to that, I wanted to talk about something that's a little obvious, but I think it's an important one to get reminded of every so often. Here's a scenario most people have been in. You've got a car in mind that you're thinking about as buying for your next car, or maybe your first car. What happens? You see it everywhere. It seems like everybody in the world has that car all of a sudden. Why have you never noticed it before? How could everybody have had this car the whole time? Well, it's because now you're thinking about it and you're looking for it. This is the ultimate example of how people see the things that they're looking for. When something is at the forefront of your mind, you'll discover that you seem to see it everywhere, whether it's a physical thing or even just an idea or concept. So you might think that I'm about to encourage you to try to visualize something and manifest it into being for yourself, but that's not where we're going at all. All I wanted to do with this quick little rant is remind you to try to look for the positive in things. There's a million places this can apply. Here's a couple. When you go on social media, do you do it to celebrate the success of your peers? Or do you do it because you're not satisfied with your own career and you want to confirm that other people are indeed doing better? Or how about when you're emailing or texting a collaborator about revisions to a project? Are you reading it looking for them to be critical of your work? Or are you reading it like team members working together for the greater good? So if you want to be jealous of your peers or feel judged by your collaborators, I guarantee that you will, because that's what you've set out to find. And you'll notice everything in your interaction that supports what you're looking for. Here's another one. If you're looking for people to not like your music, then you'll for sure notice your low stream count or maybe the lack of playlisting but you'll probably overlook the supportive messages from fans or the people sharing on socials. But look, you don't have to be the overly optimistic, happy-go-lucky person that makes everyone a little crazy to get value out of this idea. Let's be real, life isn't perfect. All I'm saying is that if you set out looking for the worst in a situation, that is for sure what you will find. And honestly, there has never been a time that looking for good has been more important. Your social feeds are probably filled with negativity on a daily basis. The internet knows doom and gloom gets more clicks than anything, except for maybe cat videos. That's why you have to get out there and actively look for the positive. Don't spiral down the dark side, because if you do, it will spill over into all your other interactions. All of a sudden, every failed opportunity or bad interaction will become another check in the see you told you the music industry sucks column, and any potential good from those situations will go unnoticed. So here's a quick tip to try. Take a second to think about what you are looking for in an interaction or a job opportunity before heading into it. Think, what good can come from this situation? And I'm not saying that thing is just going to magically happen. 
But if you have that in your mind, you might see an opportunity to do or say something that would shift things in a direction that might lead you to your good outcome. If you're looking to be disappointed by someone or something, then you'll never even see that opportunity. So in closing, whatever you do, don't go through your day expecting the worst out of everything because you'll find all of it. Instead, look for opportunities for good and give yourself a chance at positivity. So that's it, short and to the point today. On to the show. Today, we won't be joined by just one guest, but by two, the songwriting, composition, and production duo of John Trivers and Liz Myers. Operating as Trivers Myers Music for over three decades, Liz and John have amassed quite a resume. They have created musical brand identities for clients such as Apple, American Express, Verizon, and United Airlines. They've produced performances for commercials with artists such as Sheryl Crow, Herbie Hancock, and Long Long. And you can probably make the argument that they reshaped the sound of modern news with their CBS Evening News theme, which ran for 19 years. In addition to all their work in film and television, they have also written for or performed with artists such as Blue Oyster Cult, Eddie Money, and Tina Turner. If you can believe it, that's the abbreviated version of their career. So welcome to the show, John Trivers and Liz Myers. Hey, y'all. Hey. Thanks for having us, Travis. Thank yeah, you. thanks. Thanks for being on. I, I feel uh, I feel outnumbered. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> really? <laughs> but uh, how have things been with y'all? Great. A lot of very similar days. <laughs> I think that's for all of us. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you no. Know, um, the thing about being a musician is that being stuck in quarantine in a pandemic and having your musical instruments stare at you all day long, asking to be played, it's not so bad, really. It's kind I like of- that. I like yeah, it. It's kind yeah. of like uh, the way it always is, you know, they're just waiting to be played. So now we have a bit more opportunity to practice. Do you feel a little like energized to almost get back to your roots and just play music to play music and not be quite as busy? Or, or hopefully you guys were busy, but maybe had some more time. I think it's exactly that. I, I mean, getting back to your roots, I was just thinking today when I knew we had this interview and we were, you know, thinking about past, present, future. And it seems like the constant for me, since I'm the more classically trained musician of this duo, you know, when I started playing piano at such a young age, my mom was a piano teacher. And so having the piano sitting there staring at you, exactly that. I've come back full circle to doing classical piano works. And I actually take a piano lesson once a week. Oh, wow. Nice. <laughs> yeah. And the guy she takes a lesson from is this terrific guy that's, you might, you might have met him. Bernard Bayer at our place, at our studio. But she's playing really esoteric and difficult music. And it's really great. That's awesome. It's, just, it's kind of filtering through the house, you know, no matter where we are. It's great. And I go back in our little, my little music room and here's what here she hears coming up. Ba-boom, 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 ba-boom. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so we definitely yeah. come from two different places. Uh, musically that's but right. Liz's music is really nice it's beautiful for anybody that doesn't know John uh, John is a bass player by trade so um, yeah yeah and so he's he's like learning every song off the new I, I hope I'm not giving anything away but he's learning all of the Taylor Swift you know no, it's not what I'm <laughs> you're, you're you're misrepresenting me <laughs> by the way the new Taylor Swift record is really good. It's the bomb it is it is, so, it is. It is. The lyrics so good are unbelievable and she has so, this one it, lyric it, Right, no, her, her lyrics. She, I'm gonna, she, I'm gonna park. I'm gonna. What was the the line? I'm parked where, by the Methodist across the parking lot from the school that was ours. 
I'm parking by the Methodists. <laughs> what a, who can get away with those kind of I mean, I, I actually found her a lot of her early records. I would never listen to them, but I'm a big fan of Bon Iver and the National and those guys. So, I mean, I just, I, I wanted to hear what all the hoopla was about. <laughs> I put the record on and I, there's a pick up a bass and just start playing along because the songs are so nice and very clever. Very well written. Yeah. Yeah. And, and really her, well produced. Very her rhythmic thing with her, the way she presents her lyrics is pretty great. That's great. Well, I'll, uh, we'll, we'll get her on the show. <laughs> <laughs> Please do. Yeah. Uh, so, from my understanding, Trevor's Myers music began in New York. No. Right? No. <laughs> no. But you, you guys no. met in New York. We met in New York in an orchestra pit of a Broadway show. Okay. What brought y'all individually to New York? Uh, shall I go, Liz? You go. Yeah. I went to college in upstate New York, and uh, I knew that I was going to try to make my living as a musician. And even though I was completely self-taught and essentially a bar band bass player, I had the courage and maybe the self-delusion to think that I could make a living playing the bass. So I went to New York knowing nobody, which was not far from my parents' house on Long Island. Okay. So I knew the city. I, I knew that, you know, I was okay. So um, I was lucky to meet one guy that introduced me to another guy who introduced me to somebody else. And he was the music director of a Broadway show. And he called me and it was a show that ran and opened and closed in one day. And the next show, he called me a year later. I've got another show. Do you want to do it? And I'm, you know, 24 years old. And I said, absolutely. I'd like to have a, you know, steady gig. And this show ran for nine years. So uh, it was Greece, and Liz came in as the associate conductor. And the great thing about doing the show for me was that I could take off and go on the road. With I was playing with some singers, Mary Travers and Peter Allen. So I was kind of busy on the road, but I could come back to a gig. So oh, that's was, nice. You know, I was playing on a lot of sessions, and uh, I mean, it was the kind of thing where you do, you do whatever it is. I would be writing a song with the lead singer of Blue Oyster Cult one day and playing bass on a Captain Kangaroo pre-record the next. <laughs> and, that's, and that seemed normal. That sounds like the New York scene. It was, it was uh, really like, um, there's a lot going on in New York at that time, right? In the 70s. Well, yeah, it yeah. was the mid-70s. Mid and I had come up from North Carolina because I went to school there, went to Wake Forest University for two years, and then across the train tracks to this uh, new school that was founded for um, performing arts. And it was an incredible experience. And actually, little known fact about me is that my off-campus roommate was the cowboy in the village people, <laughs> Randy Jones from North Carolina, Raleigh. Big show business footprint from North Carolina School of the Arts. Right. Okay, so we all <laughs> headed right to New York City right after graduation. And that was the era of Studio 54. That was when New York was a tough town. And uh, we were doing Broadway. That's where I met John. What year did you come to New York? 74. Okay. When did you get there, John? 1970, right after college. Okay. I've been a professional musician for 50 years. It's good. It's amazing, isn't it? It is. It is. That's, that's, that's <laughs> awesome. So when y'all got to New York, you know, and you started to feel like you were getting a foothold there, did you think that that's where you would stay forever? Was that like, it was such a cultural hub, especially in the 70s. Was that like the spot that you wanted to be in? Couldn't wait to get out of there. 
Well, John had spent a lot of time. He actually grew up in Oyster Bay Cove. So he spent a lot of time in Manhattan. And I was only there for five years, but uh, they were tough years. And we did discover that in New York, if you are a certain kind of musician, your life's career will always be revolving around that circle. In other words, if you are a jazz musician and if you're doing casuals and weddings and bar mitzvahs and supplementing your income some with studio work, you're always going to be a jazz musician that does that. If you're a Broadway musician, you go from show to show to show. Right. If you're a songwriter, you're supposed to stay in your, you know, your apartment in Brooklyn and write songs. And if you're a touring musician, you're leaving New York to come back. And they did not mix that much. And there really wasn't that much film work. And we were not in the commercial business at all. But like John said, he was doing Captain Kangaroo. And he was also, we moved, we moved out to California together. No, I was playing on a lot of commercials. Like, that's, the, that's what I was going to get yeah. to. I said one of his first checks came through. I think it was Welch's Grape Juice. Or, uh, oh, Bum Bum <laughs> Bumblebee Tuna. He played on the jingle for Bumblebee Tuna. Yeah, you're laughing. And he, I was proud of that. I sounded good. <laughs> it was bum, bum, bumblebee, bumblebee, tuna. That's got John Trevor's bass line on it, right? That's awesome. And it's where we learned, you know, thinking about the concept of your show here, progressions and being a professional. We both came into the business, which was we wanted to be professional. And the definition was paying your bills with the money you're making from this career. That's and true. We're pay we started paying for our apartments and our food each week. And, uh, you know, the cost of getting on the subway, et cetera, et cetera. And so we called ourselves professionals, but we didn't want to be pigeonholed as always being Broadway musicians. We and had something both else interesting. No, I, that's that's very true. And I and I more than you. Because truly, yeah, truly, because you you understood the big picture. Well, also, I was I was involved with my buddies in Blue Oyster Cult writing for their mm. records because the lead singer and I are, are really good friends and have been forever. And so he would come off the road and they were, they were huge. I mean, they were selling out arenas all over the world. Oh yeah. But the guys wanted to make, make try to get as many songs on the albums as possible. Cause that's where the dough was. Yeah. And it took me probably two or three albums before I ever got one song on one of their records. And that was a oh, big wow. deal. One thing is I would play on these commercials and they'd always call the rhythm section for 10 AM. Okay. But they have their whole day structured out in New York. The singer will come in 11. If there are any strings or horns, they come in at noon. Then they'd mix in the afternoon. I would play on these sessions, and then I would go in the control room and sit in a dark corner and keep my mouth shut and learn everything I could about the studio. Oh, that's good. That's so, good. I mean, I'm back there with the second runner, just vibing it. And I learned <laughs> so much because I, you know, I worked consistently. And there were a couple of different places where different studios we worked with. I worked for a couple of different jingle guys. And it was, it was, it was really illuminating, you know, because I didn't know anything about it. That's where, I mean, John really understood the concept of what a jingle was, because in New York, there's Madison Avenue, and every big advertising agency had a job called music director. If you're the music director of an advertising agency, it's not like an MD for a Broadway show. It's a different job. It's really a translator. A music director, uh, yeah, contracts the composer, usually at the direction of the creative team or the producer from the ad agency. But the music director has to make sure that the music is delivered on time and that the desires of the creative team are translated correctly to the composer and that they get what they want. And it's a, it's a powerful job. 
And John knew that that job existed in New York, but it did not. Exist. I used to work for those guys. Right. It did not exist in L.A. And I think for both of us that early on, we found out what it was like to be a sideman or uh, the person in the pit of the show. And then we also were able to see what it was like to be on the stage doing the show. And then in recording sessions, we could see, aha, the real power is beyond the glass. Right. The re they call it, the, that's why they call it the control room. <laughs> that's, that's where the decisions are made. That's classic. Well, just for some of our listeners, I'm just going to run down a little bit of my understanding of, especially New York at that time is, and you guys can chime in and correct me if I'm wrong, but there was a lot of jingles going on. And for anybody that doesn't know what a jingle is, it's the uh, the music on the radio or, or television. And that was kind of the day shift at the studio. And things were structured into three-hour sessions, probably two or three, four-hour sessions. Yeah. So like John was saying, rhythm section comes in, then vocals come in, strings come in. Everybody leaves, and they'll set up for maybe like a rock band or or one of the, the non-advertising things who will work into the night. And then when morning rolls around again, it's back to... They break it down, yeah. Yeah, so it's it's a whole other world. I mean, I think, you know, people these days are used to, they open a new session in Pro Tools or Logic and that's their their new song. And five minutes later, they have another song. But back then, things were moving so quick. It's so many moving parts. And Travis, check this out. Jingles were supposed to be done three an hour. You could three record an three an hour. Three an three hour. Tracks. So, I mean, 20 you, minutes each. Well, I mean, so you had to have your reading pretty well locked up, you know, or at least, you know, you want to know a funny story. Uh, Elliot Randall was a wonderful guitar player who's, who played the solo on um, Reeling in the Years and Steely Dan. Oh, yeah. He and I would be called for a lot of these, for one guy always called both of us. And both of us were, at best, mediocre readers, okay? So we'd be given these chord charts with rhythm slashes and little figures. So... We would put our heads together and put the music together and say, oh, listen, Elliot, how are you going to phrase, you know, bar seven? And, and we would figure out something to play together so that even though we might not have exactly what the arranger wanted, it was something that was groovy enough, you know, to get us to the end. You know, he would sometimes he would just, you know, it was in, when pedals were just coming out for guitar players, you know, okay. in the 70s is when that started. <laughs> so he had a univibe, which was like a chorusing Thing, uh, you know, like electroharmonics made it maybe somebody. Yeah, yeah. It was, yeah. <laughs> but, but you just press a button and just play an A minor chord and it's going, whoa, whoa, you know, it's like all over the place, but it sounds great. So he would just set up the pedal, press the pedal down, play the changes. <laughs> and it would be, it was such a new sound that everybody flipped out and loved it. Oh, everybody loved it. Yeah. You're just playing, yeah. playing whole notes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's so, great. That's awesome. So, okay. So then you guys are starting to understand like, the control room and, and the musical director sounds like essentially very much like a producer type yeah. mentality. Uh, how did you start to shift into wanting to participate more on that side as opposed to the player side? Well, I just wanted to work. I wanted to work as a bass player and as a songwriter. So we, we had, Liz and I had our 10 years in New York. We did Grease, played on a lot of stuff. Lucky enough to get songs on a bunch of BOC records. But we moved to L.A., assuming that uh, our reputation as being fabulous musicians would precede us, and it didn't. So we had a tough time getting the ball rolling in L.A. You know, I had to start finding contacts again. The same thing probably you did when you came to L.A. You knew a bunch of guys from Berkeley, right? 
Yeah, but I wasn't getting work from home. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, we were getting beers. Exactly. exactly. You're, you're kind of, <laughs> okay. So you I, think uh, that are going to pan out, right? So the, the way we, the way I got behind the glass was I had I had an audition for a, a band on Capitol Records. I'm looking at your sweatshirt called Prism, P-R-I-S-M, a band from Canada. Every bass player in L.A. was there because they had a hit record, but there was no band to go on the road. And I was lucky enough and fortunate enough. I, I really made an effort to really learn the music well, and I got the gig. So within a week, we were on the road playing our hit record, opening for ZZ Top and Loverboy, on the bus, playing everywhere. Guitar player in the band was very good, Paul Warren, who eventually played with Rod Stewart. I mean, it was, and it was a pretty good band. So that tour was over. We came back to L.A. to start the next Prism record. And John Carter, who was the producer, was producing that record and Tina at the same time. And he okay. invited the guitar player and me to play on Tina's record. We would do six hours on Prism in the morning, starting from 11 till 5. And then at 6.30, go over to Sunset Sound and record Tina's stuff. Awesome. I, I don't know how I did that. I don't know how I had any energy at all. <laughs> you know, at 10 o'clock at night after working all day long, every day, every day, every day. But because um, it was fun. That's why you had the energy. It was really yeah. fun. It was fun. It was great. Yeah, it was unbelievable. That's, and, that's the, awesome. and the thing is, this was before she had her, her second career. This was the Private Dancer album. Okay. And she was as hardworking and as talented and as charming a person as you can meet. She was, she was one of the guys who wanted to make this thing good. And that's she was awesome. great. Yeah. So what happened to me was that record was finished. Tina goes to London with her band that she already has. My band on Capitol Records breaks up. I'm out of work and not happy about it. It happens so, so fast in the music business. <laughs> the, the roller coaster is intense. You know, in a couple of days. Yeah. So I have a lot of energy and I'm willing to do anything moderately interesting. So I sent out a bunch of letters to advertising agencies in LA. New York agencies have musical directors. I can do that gig for you. I've played on a million commercials. I've played on records. I know how this thing works. I can help you out. So I sent out a lot of letters, got one response. One was, was actually a person that Liz knew because she had had a, a small company with a friend of hers. If you're enjoying this episode, then please consider pulling your phone out, tapping that share button, and sending this to one person that you think would enjoy it. Obviously, it would be huge for me, but it could be even more game-changing for that person. You just never know what can inspire or help someone else out. I want to take a second to tell you about Secret Sonics, a podcast by Ben Wallach and Carl Bonner. Secret Sonics is one of my favorite shows, and it's now double amazing with the addition of Carl Bonner as a co-host. Ben and Carl have teamed up to discuss the real-world trials and triumphs of music production. They cover it all from mixing and studio tricks to branding and mindsets. If you're a fan of progressions, you'll be a fan of Secret Sonics. Check it out wherever you listen to podcasts or hit the link in the show notes. Okay. Well, let, let, let's pause. While you're on the road uh, with bands, you guys came to L.A. together. Liz, what were, what were you doing to get your, your L.A. orientation going? Well, I arrived here having done some orchestrations for the Bad News Bears through a mutual contact. I didn't get any more other orchestrations except for one, and that was to recreate the three-part harmony orchestrations for the Andrews sisters for Maxine Andrews to do on her own because she had a fight with her sisters. <laughs> so my very first job was sitting in the apartment 
recreating Boogie Woogie Bugle Boy. Okay. That's great. I mean, that's just a really esoteric, amazing way to start your career someplace. But it goes, you know, it goes to, I think it went to Texas and the band played it and they, everybody liked it. But what's my next job? Right. So I'm moving on and on. And so, um, as John said, I was part of a collaboration with some uh, music that was electronic based for advertising. And through mutual connections and also through a sales rep, one of the first jobs that uh, we had through that was like for Wiener Schnitzel. And it was a giant day advertising. And I met Richard O'Neill, the executive producer at Shia Day Advertising. So fast forward several years later, I can't, for, I can't remember how exactly I was able to speak to Richard about that, but I said, you should send your letter to Richard O'Neill. Yeah, you told me to. Yeah. And so then I must have either followed up or he called me and said, what's going on? I said, well, this is my husband. He's just come off the road. Tina Turner, Blue Oyster Cult. And he goes, Blue Oyster Cult. <laughs> and it turns out that, you know, Lee Cloud, the creative director of Shiat Day, wanted to meet John because they had just signed this deal for the sound of the new Apple computer campaign. And it was for a little known computer called Lisa. And they needed someone to come in and be the translator. Here's what they did. There was a record company called Wyndham Hill Records. Mm -hmm. George Winston was on it. It was kind of a super hi-fi vinyl, high-end audio place, kind of Northern California music. Steve Jobs loved this label and said to the head of the label, Will Ackerman, you guys will do all our music. I love the sound of your stuff. So... Richard O'Neill, who was the executive producer of Chiat Day, realized that they had somebody to liaise between the advertising agency and this record company, who frankly could give a shit about doing these commercials. They were not into it and they were slow and expensive. But my job was to be the guy to tell the record company what the agency needs and, and from the music side, tell the agency what the, what the label needed. So what I did was one weekend I brought home like 40 albums because that was the whole catalog of the label to our apartment in Studio City. And Liz and I sat on the floor and listened to them. Most of them were really average. One of them, one guy was a genius, Andy Norell, who's a jazz steel drum player and a great pianist. And this guy is enormously talented. And his music has charm to it and it's, it's, it has a groove. It's great. So I went in to Shia Day on Monday morning after transferring some of this stuff to a cassette because I had a Walkman and I would play it for people, you know, just trying to sell this guy who was a genius. Right. I said, this steel drum thing is like, would be the coolest music for, for computers. It's an organic thing. It's not a techie thing. It's not programmed Oberheim synthesizers. You know, this is, this is the hipper stuff. So it turned out that the agency loved the idea of this kind of Trinidadian happy jazz that Andy was playing. And, and, and it worked great against the film. I would go to the film editor. They had a film editor on staff, and we, we would play stuff against the cuts they were working on. So Andy did all the commercials. And I, we, I would go to San Francisco to a couple of studios up there, Russian Hill, and a co couple of good ones. Mm -hmm. um, also the record plant, too. We were, they worked there and saw so a funny thing. I don't know if I ever told you this, Liz. We were in the record plant doing like three commercials and Buck was next door. 
oh, doing really? a solo record. <laughs> yeah. uh, the guitar player from wow. uh, Blue Oyster Cult was, he lives in Connecticut, was living in Connecticut and did his record in San Francisco. <laughs> so anyhow, Shyatt uh, Day would have eight panel cartoons, storyboards for their commercials. And they'd have a meeting and they would explain to everyone what, what was going to happen in the commercial, including the account guys who would go to Apple to explain it to them. Say, because for instance, so let's say, let's just jump ahead. Trevor's Myers Music, our client is the advertising agency. The advertising agent's client is Apple Computer. So right. everybody has a client here, right? right? To answer that bell. So they were, I would go to these meetings and they'd go along and they'd say, this is going to look like we're going to be tight lockdown camera. It's going to, we're doing like a food shoot. It's going to look beautiful. The computer's great. We got a guy that can make it do its thing. And they'd turn to me and say, well, Trevor's, what's the music going to be? And I would say, well, in advertising, it's, it's not rocket science. There's a problem and there's a resolution. Okay. There is, and there's an anticipation and there's a result. And so I'd say, well, okay, we'll do something kind of tensiony, probably going to be piano music because you like solo piano music. And it might be bing when the guy puts his finger on the mouse, a beautiful melody will happen. You say, oh, that sounds great. Good. Okay. You took care of that. So then I would take that same scenario. And I'd send the storyboards to Andy and I would sing him the same thing. And he would write something way more brilliant than what I was singing. And kind of that's how we did all those commercials. That's amazing. But a really I mean, funny you can, story. You can, well, let me just say one thing. Yeah. I mean, you can, it's a short walk from the sound of steel drums to the sound of a piano. It is. Totally. So that kind of, you know, transparency works really well with Ed Grover was the voiceover of was the voice of Apple in those days. He's a famous voiceover talent. It worked really well. It was like highs and lows, you know? And then eventually the deal fell apart between Wyndham Hill and Apple. And I said to Richard O'Neill, I said, you know, these guys take two weeks. I can make this happen by tomorrow. And Liz, Liz and I will just write it and she'll play it. Yeah. So I would, I would take a rough cut from a commercial home, play it for Liz on a three-quarter inch video machine, if you remember those. Yeah, <laughs> I don't. <laughs> you don't. You don't. I mean, because he was—he was not only working on Apple; he was working like on a Pizza Hut. Yeah, they yeah, had this a, idea a of, of a white commercial background with food flying through it, and then the pizza is delivered at the end, and they wanted something really Italian. So he came home one night and said, "Do you know anything Italian?" And I played an opera aria on piano, just exactly thirty seconds on an audio cassette. He took it into the office the next day, and it was on the air like two days later. Look at that I mean, cassette. Was, yeah, and it was a dog barking. That did happen long. once. <laughs> yeah. That's right. That's yeah. right. They, yeah, they did. They, they kind of used high, uh, high technical uh, yeah, expertise. So, to so make what, it, that's that's how that's how our company got started. Quick response. Yeah. Yeah, and that's and amazing. yeah, and focused response too. Yeah. There's a funny story from that era working on those early computer commercials. I was at a film shoot with Adrian Lyne was the director who did Nine and a Half Weeks and Flashdance and Fatal Attraction, this English guy. Kevin Costner is the actor. He's sitting at the Lisa, which is this computer the size of a suitcase. It's enormous. Right. And it, and it had the memory of your first flip phone, okay? <laughs> I mean, it was, it was super slow. And the commercial was about, he picks up the phone and says, yeah, I'll be home for breakfast meaning he'd been working all night because he's getting so much work done on his Lisa. Well, when they're shooting the commercial, Costner is kind of on the computer. Then he writes down something on a, on a pad, and then Steve Jobs flips out and goes crazy. He said, what's that paper doing on his desk? 
there will be no paper on anybody's desks in the future. You'll just open another window in your computer. And one of the agency guys said, yeah, but Steve, it takes 30 seconds for that page to load. You know, this was so slow, this computer. But um, <laughs> they, this film shoot stopped for two hours while they went back and forth about this. To take the paper off the desk. Yeah. But didn't Steve Jobs show you how to use a mouse? Oh, the yeah. First time? Said, yeah. Everybody said, what's uh, <laughs> that thing in that guy's hand? He said, oh, let me just show you. Here you it's, it's a mouse and the cursor goes around. And, yeah. That's yeah. awesome. Nobody had seen one. That's amazing. That's so good. This is, this is the summer of 1983. Right. And then and then two months later, the word came out, uh, Lisa's not doing so well. We have another computer we're going to start doing <laughs> a new commercial for. Yeah. And we're going to go to London and shoot that one with Ridley Scott, the director of Blade Runner. And it might come out, you know, sometime around January. <laughs> you know, we're thinking about maybe we'll just run it on the Super Bowl. And it was the famous 1984 commercial that was being produced That's right. in London. That's mm. right. So it sounds like you kind of created this job for yourself by telling everybody in Los Angeles that, hey, this <laughs> is a thing. I know how to do it. Yeah. You don't have it. Yeah. Let me get in there. And then, yeah. you know, by getting your feet in there and earning everybody's respect, find yourself actually becoming the composers as well. And, and not only from that, not, as soon as the stuff went on the air, Especially the Apple stuff that when Liz and I started doing it, our phone just stopped, wouldn't stop ringing. Really? I mean, we well, had, yeah, it we came. Had, I, the first phone call that came through from the Apple work was uh, a music director in New York. I think it was Ogilvy, New York. It was uh, Faith? Faith Norwick. She called us. She said, "I've heard this stuff on the air. I can't believe it. It's gorgeous. I've got a Jason Robards campaign for American Express. We'd like you to do the music." So we did all the music for them. So it would become <laughs> the underscoring. Um, mavens and it's it like it prior to that all piano music had been like for public service announcements mm. kind of really pablum kind of c major kind of stuff but what this opened the door for was kind of dynamic a little bit more challenging in a way but we call it the uh oddball orchestration it was it's it's called it's like somewhere between whimsical and i hesitate to say intelligent but it was it was no, it slightly was very no, adventurous it, it was yeah. it was super it was really understated emotionally. It was, it was not, it was more of a mood piece. It was more of a mood vibe. That's the whole thing. We learned how to set the mood of a situation in two or three seconds. And you knew that something interesting or something was going to exactly. happen. Exactly. There's yeah. a, a famous United Airlines commercial where we tell the story of a man's life in 60 seconds. And it's all solo piano. And so there's something really powerful about that single instrument and its ability. And it's by the way, light. Liz played that while we were running the film. Yeah. No clicks. Okay. Staring at the film, kind of writing as we're, you know, kind of flying as we're going. And we just added a little bit of uh, Rhapsody in Blue in the last 15 seconds. This is the United Airlines, right? Yeah. It's called A Life. Yeah. And it's, uh, it's, that's really good. Along with this beautiful David DeWitt uh, animation. It is the story of a person's life in 60 seconds. And it's the wild really cool. thing is, is that all of a sudden, this was what we were doing for a living. And this is not at all what I had intended. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I just assumed I'd get another gig or go back on the road or get in a band or do something. And suddenly, Liz and I are overwhelmed with work and having fun doing yeah. it. Well, you said you wanted to work. <laughs> I did. <laughs> yeah. Still do. Well, I was going to add one one thing that you had prepped me prior to this about the concept of uh, luck coming into someone's career. 
luck appearing, good luck, bad luck, whatever. And John and I were talking about this. We said, you know, how lucky do you feel? And there were some lucky things that happened. Maybe it's lucky that he knew somebody or was referred to somebody. Was it lucky that I didn't, that they picked Rudy Sarso to play bass with Ozzy before I got there? That was, that was truly lucky that you didn't get certain auditions. I mean, you know, there's a certain kind of fate to it, but yeah. you sort of make your own luck in a way. Or you take advantage of opportunities. That's the way I look at it. Yeah. Yeah. Which is what you were doing. Yeah. Well, I read something the other day about, uh, they're saying that they've never, this is a screenwriting professor at UCLA. And she said, I've never met a writer who was talented and resilient, who was not a success. Oh, wow. If you have the talent, you also have to have the resilience to withstand the bad luck. Or the, or the thing that happened to John, which was that he, um, what did you have? Let's see, you had learned every single Ozzy Osbourne oh, song. Oh, I got called to audition for Ozzy's band when his first, his first record came out. That was his first call his in first, LA. His first solo record. Yeah. And, and I got the... Um, I got the recommendation from Mike Jensen, who was the Blue Oyster Cult publicist. So I had learned, I was ready to go. I mean, I had it covered, but they took the guy that played before me. And then I never got a chance to play one note. Oh, you didn't even get to audition. He walked no. into SIR and they were packing their bags. Oh, no. <laughs> I'm okay. sure that, that there are people listening that that probably happened to so many people. <laughs> especially in, in this town. I have so many friends that have, uh, have you know, been in that situation. <laughs> Hearing how things started to like turn into Trivers Myers and, and how you guys had such a fast turnaround. I know that Trivers Myers music has always like stood behind having this like really organic, real music approach of like through performed music. And I can see how those things are all coming together. And I was going to ask you, is there a point where you knew that that's what your style and your brand was? Or did you just kind of realize that that's the kind of music that you, you all were making and it was working for, for your clients? It's the only way we could do it. For me, you know, I'd pick up something and start playing until it starts to feel good. Yeah. Now, you know how our writing style, sometimes we'll have a piece of film and I'll play a synth part and I'll play it badly. Then Liz will come over and play the same synth part and play it well. And then change the sound. And then I'll, I'll play a part to that. And then we realize that we'd like that part better than the synth part. So Liz will change her synth. You know what I mean? We kind of go back and forth, tag team. Back and forth. Yeah, yeah we, do, we approach it like tag team wrestling. You know, one person taps out, <laughs> doesn't have an idea. The other person jumps in the but, ring. Um, we're both good enough players that we can do that quickly. You know, it doesn't, it, yeah. the writing usually is very fast. And the playing is quick, too. Well, you know, uh, sometimes John comes and speaks to my UCLA class, right? And they always like to hear if he has, like, advice for young musicians who want to try to make a career. And so he has these three tips, and one of them involves improvisation. John, do you want to talk about your three tips for success in the music business? Simple. <laughs> Use your contacts. Right, Travis? Yeah. How did you get the gig at Capital? Contacts. <laughs> what did you know somebody there? Yeah. It was it was a, a recommendation through yeah, a thing. Of course. But yeah. Don't be afraid to ask for what you want. Some people are, you know, a little reticent about asking for, you know, but you it's not gonna happen if you don't ask for it. And the third and most important yeah. is in every situation, whether it's an audition, whether it's a job interview, 
whether you're cooking dinner, you have to be prepared to be ready to improvise. And if you, if you are well prepared, like for this thing of yours, but ready to improvise, <laughs> there'll always yeah. be some unexpected gold at the end of the rainbow. I agree. Those are such good tips. And the, uh, the not being afraid to ask for what you want is that one. I think a lot of people, they don't get anywhere near that. It's very difficult. There's so much fear when it comes to that. Fear of rejection. You know, because you're afraid that if you ask for more time or you ask for more (laughs) money or you ask for more players or whatever it is that you're just going to lose the gig, but you don't know that unless you ask. That's true. So those three tips are are perfect. And you were talking about preparation. I kind of wanted to like, uh, I wanted to throw some more tips for, you know, younger composers in there. Along the lines of preparation, I think the first time that we didn't probably met when I was working at Capitol was that United Airlines ad that you guys did there. And I remember that being just an epic undertaking. It was Herbie Hancock and Lon Lon playing piano. There was film crews shooting. I guess that was the commercial that they were shooting. You had all the ad people there. You've got high-level, super-talented artists. Uh, yeah, LA Phil players. <laughs> is So... That, I guess, stuff like that became the norm for you all. What kind of preparation and improvisation comes into play when you get to that point? Liz wrote a great piece, you know, for that film. And we had an assistant. I don't know if you remember Paul Rudolph, who was our composer's assistant, who conducted that day. And he went through Liz's piano performance again without it. And there was no click when you wrote that piece. And he created a variable click so that he could conduct Herbie and Long Long playing the piece that Liz wrote, okay? And with tempo changes and ebbs and flows, but he, he was getting the click and they weren't. And he was such a good conductor that he led them through the piece. And then he, remember that? Yeah. It was genius. So Right. And, and Travis, I guess you have, to, you have to go back to 1974 because I came to New York uh, to work with the choreographer named Agnes DeMille. And... I was in the pit of the Joffrey Ballet where she was having her ballet, Rodeo and Texas Fourth that I orchestrated. So I'm an orchestrator and dealing with orchestral sessions was just second nature, even through Broadway. You've got the, the uh, mini orchestra in the pit. So for us, uh, I mean, combined with the fact that when you do commercials, you probably have had two weeks to get the demo approved. And the demo is pretty close to what the final is going to be like. And you know every note. And like John said, Paul Rudolph had created a beat map yeah. so that we knew exactly that it would be to sync and combined with the fact that it's animation. Yeah. So animation takes time. Thank God for animation <laughs> because when you score animation, you get to work on it more than 48 yeah. hours. So it's always been really quick like that. Yeah. Because I know my experience working with Turn you guys, ad music is like very fast turnaround. If we have a full day to write something, it's that seems like a lifetime. <laughs> you know, and back to your concept about why did you call it organic? I think it was probably just an outgrowth of needing some sort of branding statement. And there was a, a feeling of like... Uh, uh, you know, that the music could live on in the fact that it could be written down, somebody could play it. It's, it was real music. It wasn't uh, just uh, a single two-second sound or whatever. There was, 
there was a length to it and there was a composition to it and there was some structure to it and it felt improvisatory. And also to reiterate that is that some of the things were not clicked out. Some of the things were what we call rubato. Some things ebbed and flowed. And now when you hear music like that on TV, it really, or or anywhere you hear it, it really, oh man, it really packs a wallop. So Travis, you were working at Capitol then? Were you one of the assistants on that date? I was a runner. I had to go buy CDs uh, for, um, (laughs) uh, somebody wanted long, long to sign a bunch of CDs. I saw I had to go and find like 20, 20 copies of, of his record. I had to go to like five shops <laughs> or whatever it was. That is Jesus. <laughs> you know, that session we had Herbie Hancock's Fazziola piano and Steinway brought in long longs. And you remember we put them belly to belly. Yep. I do. Yeah. And that we had 10 microphones in there. So Gabe could figure out which ones to use. Yeah. Well, that was in a very intense logistical. It was a lovely yeah. session. Yeah. A lovely there session. Was yeah. So many great sessions, great sessions over there. So I wanted to ask, obviously I want to talk about CBS Evening News, but maybe before we like leave commercial music, how do you guys feel it's changed over the years? I feel like libraries have really come into play, at least in my experiences. Do you see that there's less custom music and do you feel like that is affecting ads do you see if there's opportunity for composers? Do you have any thoughts on what's different in 2020 than before? Yeah, I think there's there's a big uh, sea change. Uh, the music supervisor has become almost the music director of advertising agencies, combining themselves with a sort of a sales rep ideas like, oh, I found this new band and they have this single. Would you like to use it for your campaigns? And so with the music supervisors comes this desire to have the music full-blown and complete So there's really not time to write custom music anymore. They prefer to go through a list of playlists, some that people just choose because they like the music. And most of it now is offered to them by music supervisors as available for licensing. And so that's now uh, causing the composer to become uh, uh, more of a music publisher, to control their own music and to license it as opposed to taking the direction from the creative team and creating a custom piece of music. So yeah, it's different now. It's very different. Most of our future for commercials is already existing in our library. So a big part of our job right now is Manage to that. get our own yeah. library out there. Yeah. There's another question I had for you regarding library. Obviously, everybody pitches on a lot of jobs and they don't always get jobs. When did you all start to realize that keeping all of that music and being able to recycle things that didn't earn for you before to, you know, to have new opportunities and new life, when did you start to collect and build your library? We've always done that. We've always had a uh, thing called Rough Cut Music, which is, was our, uh, people refer to it as dead See, that's the whole thing. (laughs) And every job, Liz and I would write maybe three or four or five or six or seven seven or ten pieces. Yeah, yeah. Right. And yeah. always the first two or three were the hippest and the best. And usually the agencies would be too scared to do anything really amazing because they would don't want to take too much of a chance. Right. So we, we retain all those. And so that's, you know, in our demos, you know, you've heard they sound pretty good. And, some, yeah. and, and in our library, we've just mixed some and done some editing and mastered everything. So the library sonically is in good shape. So um, I guess you guys would encourage composers to just continually catalog music, whether they're being paid or not. Always. Oh, yeah. 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 
Yeah, but with with one caveat, um, if you fall into the copy and paste mentality of four bars here and then copy it and cop and, and just you know like a mm. songwriter would, if you're building a vibe. That's going to be trouble for advertising people because when the music is the same, when the fifth bar matches the first bar, they lose interest really fast. And so you really need to show some, uh, I say it's much better if you want to create a library for commercials to use some video, use a, a visual, another commercial, something that you can look at for uh, inspiration for the timing of things. Because you'll notice that there, it always starts with some sort of attention getting device and then you have the area that's the problem or the attributes of the product that you're advertising. Then there's usually a turnaround about 20 seconds, 21 seconds. And then there's the solution. And then you have this logo at the end and often there's a double logo. So there, you can time things out. It's very formulaic as to how the film edit works and the music needs to be matched to that. And it can't just be 12 bars unless it's like a killer a blues song or something that's just if the groove yeah. is killer you can get away with repeating it for 12 bars but other than that i'd say ah, chop it up that, that makes a lot of sense i never thought about actually writing pieces to you know pre-existing video just to have the flow because the, the flow is very important i remember everything that we did together once you had picture it was very important that things land and hit and that it's not it can't be looped because it has to really open no, up and it can't build. be looped so as your career goes on, you guys do so much ad music. You did some film stuff, some documentary stuff. I think one of the interesting and exciting things that you did was the CBS Evening News, which ran for a long time. How did that opportunity arise? Did that come from your ad work or was it come from your network? Yeah, we wrote a, uh, we did a commercial for a CBS, all still photographs of American people. And it was called The Americans. And it was black and white still photographs. And it's, and uh, we wrote this kind of brass chorale piece. It was beautiful. And they flipped at the network in, uh, in New York. So then they said, well, we're going to start. We're thinking about adding some music for Dan Rather. This, is when, this was 88, something, right? There's no so, music at this point? No, there was no. And so we wrote a piece, yeah. and, they, and they liked it. And they had an ad agency in L.A. that was designing the graphics for the new broadcast. So it was... Uh, we wrote a piece and we made the demo summer and they say had a producer who was a really smart guy, David Brown came out to our studio and we went through everything on the piano with him and he was really hip and got it. And we explained what was going to happen. And then it was, uh, it was an amazing experience because we had Bill Ross who wrote all the orchestrations and uh, we did it at Fox on the lot and Alan sides engineered it for us. So it was, uh, was pretty nice and uh, we did one session at fox and one at what we used to be called uh well the one across the street from motion Ocean way Wing? which is what, what is that uh cello cello is yes yeah, is now called east west yeah but cello yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah so um and, but, and we did it on that old the old mitsubishi digital you know the one inch digital <laughs> machine okay <laughs> it was really wild but it was a big orchestra and uh really good players and it was it was really fun to do it that's amazing. How, so that ran for a long time. When you're a composer and you have a theme or a spot like that, that spans 19 years, right? 
were, did you do refreshes? Did they come to you and say, we'd like to make some changes? We're changing the graphics. Once, once we did, honestly, uh, once it got up and rolling, they kind of took care of it. And um, I have to say in, in looking back on it, the first group of guys at CBS we worked with were great. And um, then we, we did it. When Scott Pelley came in, we did an, some edits of the original performance to fit that animation for him which was we broke all the rules of post-production. I don't know how we got this to work, but we did. <laughs> and uh, uh, we, we found the quarter-inch masters. We, we baked them, put them into Pro Tools, and did some stretches. We had to do some stuff to make it work. But uh, I don't have to I, – I would say that once they got what they needed, we never heard from them. And, uh, well, I, the fact was that the music became known as the CBS theme. And it was so well played and, and it just sounded glorious. And it didn't seem to ever feel dated. Even when we went back and, and many years later, it worked. And yes, we did add some, you know, rocket to Mars, <laughs> shoom, some swoosh yeah. and some downbeats and a couple of cymbal things here to, to, you know, and I think we had done some that were even faster. And so we used some edits of those things and looped a few things, but uh, pretty much it stayed the same because it, it had a very vibrant, strong melody to it. I think that's the good reason for its uh, longevity. Something that has kind of occurred to me, there's two things that seem to be uh, stay with you across your entire career is that you all seem to have a really strong network. Uh, I mean, you're both super friendly people. People probably love, love to stay in touch with you. And the other thing is that it was always fun. Is that what the the ride has always been about having fun with your friends and and making making music? I should hope so. <laughs> Don't you think? Yeah, totally. But some right, people it's... get lost in there and and it's not fun anymore, <laughs> so they need to remember to keep it fun. Well, I mean, you can't make I mean, even if you're doing dark, moody, suspenseful, depressing music it should still be hilariously fun doing it right Liz? oh yeah well i travis i think you're, you're touching on something that's really interesting sessions and playing with someone else when you have a client that's unhappy like either on the responding <laughs> somehow by email or you get a sensation that it's not something's not working and there can be that time in a session where the composer goes kind of dark and you don't you don't know how to fix it uh you know you i'm sure you've been in at capital where the where you see that they call it fix it on the stand the stand fix where somebody's got to solve a problem right there i mean we've had our share of a few sessions like we had this one thing where we were doing a wagner piece for something i forget what the product was but we had done an arrangement and, and it was I guess the agency's it, choice to do that piece of music it was, oh yeah we, we were just hired to do a wagner piece <laughs> right okay so we had like the mini orchestra Village studio. A. Yes. <laughs> a. And so the French horns are in there, right? You know, and it was ba-dum, bum, ba-dum, 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 ba-dum. And then the chord went ba-dum, 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 Okay. So that ba-dum. The, cl the client's sitting there on the couch, and you can see the body language like this, and it's like, ooh, that chord. And so the account executive came over to us and said, can, can we talk for a second? Took John and me aside and said, the client is having a problem with that chord, thinks it's scary. We'd like you to fix that. 
And I said, and by the like, way, it's a this, is, this is what Wagner wrote. This is the piece <laughs> you told us to orchestrate. This is not something we did. We did not make that. Right. So 10 minutes later, we, that chord. we took that diminished chord. <laughs> yep. And took out the second and the fourth <laughs> part of it. And so we still had like a tritone, but it was. We didn't make it major, but the client could hear an improvement and was satisfied. And it was like, we walked out of there going like, what the heck just happened? They were rewriting Wagner and we did it. Proud of it. But you're right. You're it, it, you know, you just, you just have to make that stuff go over as and be done as, as fast as possible because it's not the, it's not the poor musician's fault. It's not the French horn player's fault. It's all Wagner's fault and somebody should let him know. So I guess working kind of to the close here, are there moments in, in y'all's career, obviously you kind of reinvented yourself when you started becoming a music director or told, told people that you wanted to be a music director, but are there you know, moments that, in- that wasn't, that wasn't difficult. That was not difficult at all because, and, and here, though, here's one thing that's kind of interesting. It's not being a music director for advertising. It doesn't mean you have to know, I mean, you don't want to talk about B flat and E flat. You want to talk about moods. You want to talk about the spirit of the music, the vibe of the music. And it's just being able to communicate with people. That's, that's all it is. Okay, I didn't mean to interrupt you, Travis. Oh, no, that, that's fine. I was going to ask if there were other times in your career that you, you guys had to reinvent yourself or, or make a big shift just to kind of change it up a little bit. Is, is there anything that arose that got you guys to do something like that? Okay, so we went to New York to do some, what I call piano haikus. Haiku is this simple Japanese, beautiful poem that consists of like 14 syllables or something like that. And Payne Weber was doing a campaign of two people in a car, rain's coming down. She turns to him and she says, are are we gonna be sitting in this car five years from now? (laughs) And he says, what would you like to be doing? And she goes, I'm thinking. And then it comes up, plan your life for five years from now, that kind of thing. Okay, so it was like, we are here now, but we need to be in the future. So the piano was just gesturing to the spaces between so their it was conversations. No, it was not through composed. They were just, if there was a little gap after a phrase, Liz would just play a little, yeah. little thing. Yeah, it's what I called a haiku. Yeah. But I think I was about 10 months pregnant at the time. And so I think what happened is that I, I wanted to play the piano, but I also just wanted to rest. And I think John was sensitive to that. So when we had spent four hours in the studio, we found, I think because we are married and we have <laughs> a baby, and I think that our world just got bigger privately and Constantly solving those issues of where that piano note should fall became a little less <laughs> important. So reinventing ourselves, I'm not saying that we cared less about our jobs. I think that, like I said, our world got bigger and there were more interesting things in it. And we wanted to spend some time with our family. So we started a little bit, I guess, hiring a few freelancers and hiring sales reps and trying to kind of build a real company because prior to this, it had just been John. Yeah, but I liked it that way. And, <laughs> and it, it didn't work. 
It didn't work. So instead we hired yeah, a nanny. A couple of nannies. <laughs> <laughs> Went so, back you know, to work. <laughs> we used to get gigs. We had a couple of directors that always called us. And there was a guy who always did his post-production in London. And Liz and I would fly to London and we would see the film for the first time in the studio and write the music on the spot. Just the two of us. Occasionally we'd bring one, somebody, and it would, the stuff came out great because every, everybody had yeah. to make a decision. We've always everybody kept... was in the room, the agency, yeah. the client, everybody. So and we, we, right. would, we right. could roll with whatever they needed. So I, I think there's a, there's a point in your life where you start to realize that there is, there's an, a world outside of the studio. Yeah. And that's where we had to reinvent ourselves. It tests your mettle as to how much you are, you know, compelled to figure out those problems and those solving of those the, problems. Yeah, the music, I've talked about it before on the podcast, the music business is uh, so difficult to find balance in. And it's just because of that mentality of, you really love what you're doing. It's your passion. That's what you chased. You got it. Now you're working every day. You're making music. You're playing, whatever it is. Yeah. And it's hard to find that balance because work is fun. People that don't <laughs> enjoy work, yeah, yeah. They're, they're ready for the day to be over. <laughs> But uh, not people that like their job. They, they just want to keep going. Yeah, yeah that's true. That's yeah. true. I will say, however, that um, I have about a seven or eight hour half-life in the studio. Just, I just get too beat up, you know? Nothing, nothing good happens after hour 12. <laughs> and anybody that says different is wrong. My whole theory was if you're eating your second meal in a recording studio, you've been there too long. <laughs> that's good. Does breakfast count? <laughs> No, breakfast does not count. <laughs> okay, so it's got to be it's a lunch or a dinner thing. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. Liz, you mentioned uh, decision making, and that's something that I feel like people, not just in music, just technology has allowed people to delay decision making. And you guys have been in so many situations where, like you just said, everybody was there in the room, everybody liked it, or they didn't <laughs> like it. We fixed it. Everybody liked it. It was done. Yeah. Do you think uh, you think people need to get away from this lack of this fear of making a decision of finalizing something? Totally. What do you think, Liz? I think it's just the nature of how quick the process is now and basically how audio on the internet is now considered to be the wild, wild west. Uh, back in the day, it would have to go to a, a post mixer who would make sure that it was at certain levels. It was loud enough, but not too loud. And then it had to go to the station. It had to be compressed. Compression, it seems to be all over the place. Uh, you hear things just, it, you hear stuff that would you would never let go out of your studio running on the Super Bowl. And so I don't think we're going to be able to stop this lack of decision-making because the client can always say, I missed that old shot yeah. that you did. Uh, you know, where's That's that right. other shot? And they're going, wait a minute, it's going on the air tonight. Oh, oh can't you just See, pull that shot these, and put that right back in? There would be five or six in? different edits. And, and, and they'll say yes. They'll say yes. There's no, there's no way to close the door because everything is possible now. I think you just have to get used to the fact that, um, what is it? Music is a liquid. It's always taking a new shape. And all you can do is just hope that you hold the vase that holds the music for a moment. I mean, it's, it's yeah. transient. I mean, I do love the, how, you know, varied and how creative people are with all the technology, but it can definitely, when you're working in a project, make you crazy when people are asking for something that is long gone, but you know, you can get it back because you have it, but yeah. it's, you know, it's right. buried in a, in a month of a hard drive. But back in the days of destructive recording. You need destructive recording. Right. 
I just love it. To, to have two 24 track machines strapped together was already a big deal. So, uh, yeah. You know, John always says in dealing with the client, he said, look, just explain to me what you want. He said, a no is as good always. as a yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> It'll save us time. It'll what is an answer? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Do you like that? No. Fine. Okay. We'll do something else. That. <laughs> that, that's, that's awesome. So uh, two last questions for you. Uh, one is, is there anything, and I guess this can be from the Broadway side, from the studio side, from the composition side. Is there anything that you found, uh, we'll do both of you individually, through your career that has been a big benefit to you that you think a kid would not learn or would not know to think of? something that really is unexpected they're not going to get from school let's go john first okay there are no bar bands anymore okay i learned how to play the bass in a bar band we played four hours a night probably played 50 songs so i was forced to learn the parts and learn the chord changes and the harmony vocal parts to all these songs so when i when i became a real musician a professional musician i was ready to go I knew how yeah. a part worked in a song. I knew how to play live. I knew how to sing and play at the same time. Yeah. Young guys coming up now, there's, you know, Julian is staring at his computer and he's writing on the computer. So uh, there's not that live cover band thing. I mean, I, I, I learned so much then when I was a kid. Just playing all the hits, all the music. <laughs> That's right. It's funny. There's a, I had a guest earlier. He's a film composer, but he, uh, he played in a comedy piano troupe great you know where you <laughs> you know you take audience suggestions and you have to have like reggae just the combos of things awesome and he said that what he learned doing that was that he learned how to establish a piece of music just with his piano like he he identified what people reacted to that was reggae and what people reacted to that was rock and then by doing that it allowed him to do film scores way quicker because somebody's like i want something like this and this and this and in his mind, he cataloged all the things that a person reacts to when they think of a different style or a different genre. You know, similar, you guys mentioned that you did similar things along, along your way, but that's, you have to know a lot of music to be able to make a lot of music, so. <laughs> well, that's true, that's true. It and, is true. And, and with Liz and me, that's you know, her classical background was so intense that uh, we filled yeah. in a lot of each other's gaps. I'd like to add one thing about something that perhaps your listeners may not have thought of. One of my guest speakers at UCLA was a really well-known producer in the advertising industry now at Disney. And one of my students asked her the same thing. What's, what's the thing that's your biggest complaint about composers? What is, what is it that, that really bothers you the most, that causes the most friction between composers and their clients? And she said, they're always whining. <laughs> she said, nobody cares if your hard drive crashed. <laughs> And there's no yeah. excuse. Don't miss the deadline. And better yet, don't come to me that morning when you're supposed to turn in your music and say, I'm sorry, my hard drive crashed. No whining. I mean, it's just, yeah, it's, it's a heartbreaker. I don't mean to be a bummer, but it is the truth. Well, yeah. I mean, if you're going to be a professional, you're going to earn your living making music. You cannot be a whiner. You have to be an adult. Well, you have think. to do the work. Yeah. Follow through. Right. You have to have yeah. a backup plan. If you're, if you're spending your time whining, you're probably not getting paid. So <laughs> therefore, you're not a professional and you're still trying to work your way to that. So I think that's great. 
So last question for y'all. I end every show with it. Um, and I, I know I mentioned it to you. What right now, I don't know if you guys want to do this together or you want to do this individually, but what is your current goal, whether it's a Trivers Myers, a business goal, a personal goal, and what is the next smallest thing that you're going to do to, to achieve that goal? Well, as I said earlier, I'm circling back to classical music and I have been trying to conquer uh, this Russian composer named Skriabin, uh, who was kind of a, a, a Debussy kind of person, uh, really unusual, small compositions, like haikus, like the piano haiku. And I discovered his son-in-law has some audio up on YouTube, Safranitsky. These people are long gone, but... The biggest project I'm working on is to record the Scriabin Preludes Opus 11. And the thing that I'm trying to do to get there is to listen to his performances, the Safranitsky performances, and at the same time, imagine the music on the stand and me playing it. So in essence, I'm trying to channel what I know will be a great performance of those pieces. And that sounds a little bit esoteric, but I'm positioning myself successfully because I know how that music should sound. And so I'm putting my brain in that place. Does that make any sense? It makes total sense. Yeah. Jesus, Liz. I love it. It's great. <laughs> That's a big project. And my first step is to, I guess, memorize the music the way it should sound. So that's it. Amazing. John, did you have? What can I say after that? <laughs> you know, I want to play the bass and go skiing. You know, what, what is this? <laughs> I live a much simpler life. At the same yeah, time? Not at the same time. One after the other. Okay? <laughs> I, you know, I have, I have one last question. I've asked this to every bass player that's been on the show. <laughs> so I just remembered Please. I need to ask you, John. I feel like bass players make amazing MDs and producers, obviously, you, you've done that. Why? Why do you think bass players can really play that role? Because well? they're, the, they're the foundation of the world. They're the guys that have enough, enough um, strength in their personality to play whole notes on the roots and not feel that they're not getting enough attention. <laughs> does that answer your question? It, do, it does. And also, it's, I'm, just, I'm collecting also, responses. If you are the bass player, you can hear your part and everybody else's part at the same time. That is my yeah. uh, definition of a professional musician. Uh, an amateur musician is in a band and he only hears the parts that he's playing. A pro hears everybody else's parts at the same time. That in itself is a really good tip. That's, that's great. This has been so much fun, guys. I'd really enjoyed doing this. Um, is there anything you want to drop your website out for people that anybody wants to look for you guys or find your library? Sure. Trivers Myers Music. T-R-I-V-E-R-S-M-Y-E-R-S music.com. There you go. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming on. I, I really, uh, I love this. This is, a, this is a good hang. I haven't yeah. seen you guys in so long. I miss so. you, Travis. So great, Travis. It's been, yeah, it's been too long, too long. So. Thank you for awesome. doing really this. Fun. It's really fun. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you so much. See ya. So that's it for another episode. Thanks so much for listening. If you're enjoying the show, please take a second to text it to a friend or to leave us a review. It means a lot. And don't forget to join in the conversation over at completeproducer.net. And we'll see you next week.